You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Welcome, all you wiretappers out there. Back in the studio of Gangland Wire, I'm here with a new friend of mine, Chad Marks. Spent a lot of time in the penitentiary, and it's come back out a, a changed man. We're going to talk with Chad about his time in the penitentiary and what he's doing now to help change society. Welcome, Chad. Well, thanks for having me, Gary. Don't remind me of your website. Like I said, I kind of hurried this up. I didn't make a lot of notes. So what was your website again? Okay, so I got a paralegal and prison consultant firm. It's Freedom Fighters Paralegal and Prison Consultant Firm. You can find it at www.myfreedomfighters.com. You also were connected with the FAM, Families Against Mandatory Minimums. And I think you got caught up in a mandatory minimum. Is that right? Yeah, at the age of 24, I was arrested for a crack cocaine conspiracy and two 924C counts. That's possession of a weapon and furtherance of a drug trafficking crime. So I ended up with a 40-year mandatory minimum sentence when I was 24 years old. I got five years for the first gun, which was a 12-gauge shotgun, and 25 years for a 22 rifle, and 10 years for the drugs, and they are all stacked on top of each other for a 40-year mandatory minimum. In fact, Gary, I ended up getting out of prison based off the First Step Act. When the Trump administration passed that, they passed a particular part of the compassionate release motion, Yeah, and I was able to get out that way. Yeah. it's Not I'd still be in there today. Yeah, really. When I was in law school, I got involved a little bit in this families against mandatory minimums because after, you know, I've been a policeman and, and I'll tell you what, Chad, when you're a young policeman and you're working narcotics, especially, uh, and you can get a guy 50 years, I mean, you can make people talking about their mother, <laughs> turn in their sister, their spouse, their child. It was a hell of a tool. But then I started realizing that it's a tool that might be getting misused a little bit, especially after I left, you know, get separated from something like that. My ego was at play on being a cop and doing all this thing, all this big time stuff. But you get away from that and you see maybe the human side of that. And that was, I got involved with that for a little bit while I was in law school. They had a uh, through the, um, uh, not the civil rights, uh, all of a sudden, I, uh, I forgot the name of the other organization. Yeah, I got involved with that a little bit, and I saw that other side of it. Folks, you can see his website up here. I just did a screen cap of it. And they help people that are in do clemency petitions, which is a big deal right now, and support families of prisoners and a variety of other things. Sometimes people get stuck away in penitentiaries, and we just forget about them. Unfortunately, that happens. Yeah. So, Chad, I guess... Tell us just a little bit more about what happened with you. What was your story when you were doing crime? Okay, so like I said, when I was 24 years old, I became a leader of a crack cocaine organization in my neighborhood. That's probably hard to believe, right? White guy was (laughs) at the top of the chain. But I made some irrationally responsible choices to engage in drug trafficking. Had four or five crack houses going at a time. There was a conspiracy case being built by the local police department. We were arrested locally. Bailed out, never walked out of the jail, and went from the jail right over to the federal building. And that's where they said, hey, you're facing a mandatory minimum of 40 years and a maximum sentence of life. I ended up going to trial. There was a plea offer. I didn't take the plea offer. And I ended up going to trial, lost, and was sentenced to that 40-year mandatory minimum. Damn. i tell you what, that's a lot of time, ain't it? Oh, it sure is. I mean, there were times when I thought, Gary, that this was it. This is where my life would end. And, you know, when I went into the federal prison system, a lot of people think the federal prison system is this thing, quote unquote, camp fed. Well, I can tell you something. I've been in New York state prison. I've been in federal prison. New York state prison couldn't hold a match to federal prison. 
the violence was on a scale that would make purgatory look like child's play. Yeah. I had sent you some pictures yesterday where these guys had killed this guy in his cell and yeah. they stabbed him over 70 times. This was a common occurrence. I, my first prison was USP Big Sandy and people were getting stabbed there every day. You know, I've got this friend of mine here that's been on the show a few times, Steve St. John, and, and he ended up spending some time in more like Camp Fed. None of them were like Camp Fed, but it's, uh, <laughs> I tell you what, it, what's interesting, I think, some partly is it's just this whole subculture inside of a penitentiary that gets developed. And the guards aren't really in control of anything, didn't sound to me like. The, the prison subculture is what you got to fit into. So how did you deal with that? Well, this is the thing, right? And I talk about this in my book. I've talked about it on my YouTube channel. When I first walked into prison, the white dudes immediately approach you. Hey, man, who do you run with? Where are you from? You ever told on anybody? You got to get your paperwork. I mean, there's this whole list of things, right? And like you said, the cops are scared. And, uh, you know, the picture that you're showing right there, that guy was killed in Texas at USP Beaumont by his own gang members. He was part of a gang called Soldiers of Aryan Culture. And that's what they did to him. He was getting high. He owed some bills. They told him, hey, you got to stop using drugs. And he didn't stop. So they decided they were going to kill him. But the ironic thing is this guy was eating with these guys, hanging out with these guys every day, and they brutalized him. And he was telling them, hey, man, that's enough. You know, they had stabbed him 50, 60 times. He was like, hey, that's enough. Yeah. They kept stabbing him over 70 times. And then he was trying to crawl out of the cell. They thought he was dead, but he was trying to crawl out of the cell. So the one guy went back in the cell and jumped on his head and pretty much finished him. And both of those guys are now sitting on death row. But uh -huh. those are the things that happen in federal prison. Federal prisoners are innovative people, man. They turn uh, anything that's steel. They can break, they can cut, they can cut knives out of steel beds with a pair of nail clippers. You just take that edge and you just keep grinding it and grinding it and grinding it. And then you end up with what they call a bone crusher. So some of those there, those are some of the pipes and stuff that they pulled off of the bed that they would eventually sharpen. Pretty yeah. dangerous weapons there, huh? I see. Yeah. That is Definitely tough. not camp fed, Gary. <laughs> really? Okay. So how is it broken down in the penitentiary now? You talk about the white guys approached you. Now I've heard and Steve talked about the Aryan Brotherhood, the AB. Now he was a mob associate and those guys did hang together. And I don't, in the, some of the tougher prisons, the bigger prisons, he was always in the smaller ones for some reason. Rochester and Rochester and they went to Springfield to the medical facility for a while couple others up in up in the north central part of the United States. But how was it broken down and how did they navigate? We had a prison guard that talked about John Gotti goes to Merriam, which is uh, was a maximum at the time. And, and he immediately falls in with the Aryan Brotherheads, with the ABs. And the guard sees them sitting together all the time. Now, other people will say that Gotti gave them a lot of money to make sure he was under protection during that time. So how does this work from what you saw? So like I said, everything's pretty racially segregated. When you come into a maximum security federal prison, if you're white, the whites approach you immediately. If you're Hispanic, the Hispanics approach you. Same thing with the black community. They approach you. They want to know where you're from. They want to know who you run with. Are you gang affiliated? Things like that. And as far as the Italians go, whites stick with whites. And when, like I said, when I was in Big Sandy, we had a white mop bucket. They had a Spanish mop bucket, a black mop bucket, black broom, white broom. And you better not use their stuff, you know? Everybody, they segregated themselves. As far as John Gotti paying the Aryan Brotherhood, it's possible. It's not always like that. When I was in Big Sandy, that was the first prison I went to. It was probably the most dangerous prison in the country. Hands down, the most dangerous federal prison mm -hmm. in the country at that time. So usually your own people will take you and figure out who you are. If your paperwork's messed up, you know what I mean by that? You're obviously a cop. Yeah. You know, if, if you told on someone in Big Sandy and your paperwork says that, you're hit. 
They're not going to just tell you you got to leave. They're going to try to kill you. There's white guys in there in different gangs, like them guys in that picture. They would volunteer. Hey, man, he's a snitch. I'm going to kill him. Yeah. Some of these guys, you'd be shocked that some of these guys only got eight, nine years. And they say, hey, I'm going to kill this guy. Those things happen. It's not camp fed. People are dying in there. Yeah. What about when the COVID first hit? How did they treat you guys? Well, when COVID first hit, I was actually in one of the worst. I was in the FMC, Federal Medical Center, Lexington. I eventually made my way down from a maximum to a FCI, which is a medium, and then to a low. Um, I was there, man, one of the hardest hit prisons. And I remember like when it first started hitting and we looked out the window and we seen people, we seen cops running down the sidewalk, running down the walk with people on stretchers. Mm. And it was bad, man. It, it was definitely bad. The cops were scared. The prisoners were scared. And then eventually some people just didn't care. They quit wearing their masks. They were tired of having to sit in their cell. And that was a non-secure prison as far as, it was a low security as far as the cells go. Yeah. So you could just walk out of your cell whenever you wanted to. And people just didn't care. Even though we were hit, we were one of the hardest hit prisons at the time. Yeah, really. Because of that whole, goes through the air and you guys are confined and there's no way to get away from each other at all. Unless you stay in your cell 24-7. That's it. I mean, they would, and then the cops stopped caring. They would line us up nuts to butts, kind of like in the army, right? Yeah. To go get food. There'd be 300 of us in the line <laughs> yeah. Yeah. this close. Yeah. And I said, what happened to the six foot thing? <laughs> yeah. They were just trying to get through the day. They didn't care. They wanted to get through the day and get out of there, you know? But that's when I got to a lower security prison. You know, I had yeah. spent, spent time in maximum security prisons. Steve Caracappa was one of my cellmates at one time. Oh, really? A mafia cop. Right. Yeah, he was one of my cellies. Whitey Bulger. I was in the hole at the same time as Whitey Bulger. He was in the wreck cage. He was cell alone, wreck alone. I talked to him every day for probably 90 days, every right. single day. Well, tell us a little bit what that was like. That had to be interesting. I think he's a pretty bright guy from what everything I've read about him. He's, he's not just like a knuckle dragon thug. No, as far as Whitey Bulger goes, he didn't look the way that he looked when he was arrested. He was old at that time, kind of, yeah, you know, yeah. it was just before he had got killed. You could see the death in his eyes. You know, you could see it. You could see that he was a stone cold killer. He looked old, but his eyes, there was something about his eyes. And I'm Irish. I'm an Irish kid from New York. So my father's Irish and German. My mother's Irish. You know, I was always interested in Whitey Bulger. I wasn't easily fascinated by people in federal prison at all. Yeah. I had a 40 year sentence. I could care less, yeah. but I had read a bunch of Whitey Bulger books. And then for me to be able to meet him, this was after he had got stabbed before they killed him at another prison. So while he was in the hole, that's when I got to talk to him and he would just tell me stories. I would ask him questions. And honestly, I'd asked him questions about him being on the run yeah. because in my mind, I thought that somehow, some way I had to escape from prison. There had to be some way for me to get the hell out of here. Never materialized. You know, it's not easy to escape. I can tell you that. And some <laughs> yeah, of the guys that heard that. <laughs> they're just absolutely brilliant. But I was always plotting, yeah. always looking for a way. I had a 40 year sentence. I wanted a way out. And I would ask him questions like, how did you not get caught for so long? And he told me, look, at night, never go out at night. He said, that's when people get pulled over. That's when people get stopped by the police. That's true. As long as you go out there in the day, you're fine. You go out at night, you run a stop sign. You don't come to a complete stop. That's when the cops are out. Yeah. He said, stay in the house at night. Hmm. Try to probably have a nondescript car and don't do anything flamboyant. and <laughs> Live the kind of life that had he been living that kind of life, he would never go to prison anyhow. But uh, <laughs> interesting. Did he, did he talk about the money? I mean, how do you, you know, you got to have some kind of steady source of income in some manner in today's society. You know, no people don't really deal with cash anymore. He must have had some stash that he could dole himself out. 
Well, he never really talked about his money. I'll tell you what he did talk about. Two things that he used to dwell on was the woman that he got arrested with. Oh, yeah. Loved her, felt horrible for her. And this is a guy who probably didn't have much compassion for other people. <laughs> yeah. But he had compassion for her, and he despised the guy from the Boston Globe. I don't remember his name. But he would talk about him all the time, about how he would have killed him. He told me, I'm not a child molester. He wanted to make it clear to me that, hey, man, I didn't tell on people I wasn't a rat. That yeah. was stories that they made up. <laughs> no, he, he was probably ashamed of things that he did in his case, so he yeah. wanted to justify it. He said, I couldn't come out of hiding when this guy was talking these stories. He said, because I was on the run. But if I wasn't, he said, I would have killed this guy in seconds, and I would have chopped him in pieces. And so, talking to him, you could see it in his face. And he talked about Alcatraz. He had told oh, me, really? he would tell me the same story about how they sprayed him with a hose. And it was freezing cold. They put him in the hole. And the hole back then was far different than what the hole is today. Oh, that's right. He was in Alcatraz when he was real young at the last days of Alcatraz. I forgot about that. Yeah. And he would tell me about how they sprayed him with a hose. And he was freezing cold and he was shaking. Yeah. And he just thought he was going to die in there. Huh. Well, at least things are a little bit different from the Alcatraz days. but uh, Much different. Anyhow, well, that's fascinating about Whitey. And I guess I'm trying to remember that probably that reporter, whoever it was, was reporting the case on John Connolly, the FBI agent, who, by the way, just got out about 80 years old now. And he just got out. He was a guy that was Whitey's control. And Whitey was like slipping little tidbits to take care of competition, which a lot of people do. I think a lot of people don't really feel like you're snitching on anybody to hurt them particularly. You're just taking care of some competition in a smart way. And, and, and I think there's no doubt that he was he's probably doing that because they didn't they convicted that FBI agent for sure and gave him a lot of time. And in an interesting sidelight, I noticed the headline was he's been getting his FBI pension all along. So he's got a lot of money saved up. <laughs> he hadn't been spending anything. You can't spend much in there, right? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Somebody sent you 25 bucks to put on your books. You're, they're like God to you, I would imagine. <laughs> Things have gotten a lot more expensive. In federal prison, you could spend $360 a month on commissary. Oh, really? Yeah, and you need it. The food wow. is absolutely horrible. It's Dang. not waiting. Well, what do those people do? Those guys that get put in there that don't have anything when they go in and there's not, I guess their family help them out if they can. Well, a lot of guys find hustles. There's different hustles in federal prison. You know, some guys are tattoo artists. Some yeah. guys are gamblers. Some guys run a ticket for other people. Some guys work in the kitchen. I was with guys that worked in the kitchen in Raybrook and one guy put over $40,000 on his commissary account in two years in cash from wow. stealing raw meat from the kitchen, reselling it to prisoners and peppers and onions. Huh. You'd be shocked at the hustles they have in prison, especially in federal prison. Yeah. That's what my friend Steve said. He said, you just got to get to know somebody that works in the kitchen whenever you want stuff. And if you're the guy working in the kitchen, then you can sell things. I assume that they must then have a way to have a relative or somebody take that money for you and then put it back in on the books on the outside. It would be a little bit complicated. Well, they got all kinds of ways of doing stuff where in federal prison, the currency is stamps. Writing stamps. Yeah. And they're not even stamps you can use on an envelope. It's just a form of currency. So let's say I want to buy 100 books of stamps from you, right? You might say, okay, I'll sell them to you for $400 cash. So I might tell my family, hey, put $400 cash on Gary Jenkins' books. Yeah. When you get the money, you give me the stamps. People, a lot of artists, like there's a painting behind me, me and my wife. Yeah. A guy painted that for me, charged me 300 bucks. I put the 300 bucks on his account. I um, see. 
So, I mean, there's a lot of different hustles in there. You got some phenomenal artists in there. Yeah, yeah, I've seen some of that artwork. They have, it's like they have an art show somewhere every year, the prisoner's artwork, probably more than one. Yeah, I had uh, my friend Mark McNally, who did 42 years uh, for a uh, one of the first skyjackings where somebody got caught in 1971 or 72, right at 40, 41 years, and, and mostly in Leavenworth and Marion. And when he came out and did a show with him, and he was a pretty bright guy, and he started helping people with their writs. He was a jailhouse lawyer. Now, did you do some of that? You seem to have, you're a paralegal now. You could develop like Eddie Cox. We were talking about Eddie Cox, who folks is a Kansas City guy that was a jailhouse lawyer and could do writs for people. Did you do stuff like that? 100%. And you know, I don't want to come across as arrogant or anything like that, but I spent a lot of my time in the law library. I was a jailhouse lawyer. I tell people one of the best, at least in the federal system. I wrote that first compassionate release motion to ever win in the country. Oh, really? I wrote the first article for criminal legal news and prisoners legal news on how prisoners could get out under compassionate release after Trump passed the first step back. That was a case out of Texas, Conrado can too. So yeah, I did a lot of jailhouse lawyering in prison. I got over a hundred people out of prison, Gary. Wow. Yeah. A lot of people, they don't have a very good lawyer when they go in. You know, I just practiced law for the last 15, 18 years and was in and out of those courts. And I never, ever did any real criminal law. I had one cocaine dealer, but I, I don't know. I'm just not comfortable with it. I spent my whole life doing certain things and it was just uncomfortable for me, but I got to know him pretty well. And he's a good guy. He's a nice guy. And they were just, what happens is people, you get caught up in a system, it seems to me like, and you're almost willing to cop a plea just to get it over with and get something started. And these public defender lawyers, I mean, they were so hassled. It was just unbelievable in, in the state of Missouri. I had a good friend of mine I went to law school with. He just quit and really in protest and didn't have another job to go to. He said, I just couldn't stand it anymore. He said, these people were, you know, they'll take any sentence and plead guilty at anything just to get something going. Otherwise, they're just in limbo. Well, sometimes you want finalization, right? Like, I mean, even with me, I ended up going to trial, but people get tired of sitting in a county jail because prison is 10 times better than a county jail. At least you get to go outside. You get a little more of normalcy. I guess you could say you're a little more normal when you get to prison. And that's why when I walked out of prison, I had told guys in prison, I said, man, I'm going to be the voice of the voiceless. I got out right away. I started a paralegal and prison consultant firm with a woman that ran the federal defender's office that was from my city. So we linked up, put a partnership together. We're no longer partners. I put the YouTube channel together, same name as my book, Blood on the Razor Wire. And after about nine, 10 months of being home, I also put a home improvement company together where I'm trying to hire guys that are getting out of prison, guys that really want a job because... Gary, there's a lot of guys that are getting out of prison that really want a job, man. They really want to stay out. Yeah. And I want to be a part of doing that. Give them a good wage and give them a real opportunity. Yeah, it's interesting. I've noticed that when they're ready, when a guy's ready, when he gets out, he's ready. You know he's ready. He, he is not going back. He'll do anything to, to not go back. So, and you develop a lot of skill. You've developed a lot of skills. What about your education? Did you take classes while you were inside or did you have some before? Yeah, I had a high school diploma, but I ended up taking some college courses in prison pre-trial. Then I took some when I went to prison. I ended up getting an associate's degree, okay, paralegal certificate. So I tried to educate myself. And while in prison, I also taught GED classes. I taught a leadership class. I facilitated alternative to violence project seminars because it was sad, Gary. You can't even imagine how many young guys come to prison, can't even read or write from New York yeah. City. Yeah. I was just shocked. These dudes couldn't even read their letters that their girlfriend might have wrote them or their mother. Or read a Christmas card. Yeah. Crazy. It was crazy to see that. 
Yeah, I've heard that. And of course, uh, I'm sure I dealt with a lot of those people. But as a policeman, you don't really think about that. It's just my eyes totally opened up after I left the police department and started practicing law. It's a total change in me and my idea about criminals and sentencing and, and all that. And Well, you know, there are problems out there, a lot of drug and alcohol problems, but there's ways out. And that's where we need to put our energy into those ways out stop the demand rather than keeping working on the supply when it comes to narcotics. Hey, listen, I believe I deserve to go to prison, right? And I tell people that all the time. I deserve to go to prison. But at the age of 24, I didn't deserve a 40-year sentence. Really? And had it not been for the First Step Act, I wouldn't be here right now. My release date was 2038. Mm-hmm. And there were times when I thought, hey, this is it. This is my life. Mm-hmm. And when you're living in that maximum security prison, you know, your life could be gone at the blink of an eye. It could be yeah. today. It could be tomorrow. You'd have to be on edge all the time. You'd have to have a plan in your mind all the time where you were going, if you were going to eat, if you're going to the yard, if you were going to a class, if you're going to the bathroom or a shower, any kind of a communal thing. You had to have some kind of a plan in your mind all the time. Would that be a good way to describe that? 100% my plan every day when I was in a maximum security federal prison, unfortunately. And I talk about this in my book. As soon as I got there, the captain told me, hey, Best advice I can give you is get a knife and don't get any tattoos on your face. Mm. And I listened to what he said. I didn't get any tattoos on my face and I got a knife right away. And I kept a knife on me at all times. Wow. I'd rather be caught with it than... Better be caught with and without is what a dude told me. He just got out of Terre Haute. I was, I can't remember exactly. We were talking about something and, and I was interviewing him actually about some crime he was involved in. And he said, yeah, man. He says, better be caught with and without. I thought, oh, I know where that came from. 100%. Interesting. It's a heck of a lie. So what about your book? What other kind of stories are you going to have in Blood on the Razor Wire? All right. So really, my book is pretty violent. You know, I had read books in prison about other guys that were in federal prison. They wrote books and most of them were in minimum or low security. They couldn't write the book that I felt needed to be wrote. So, you know, a lot of the book, it is violent, but I can promise you this. It's hard to put down. There's people that write me and say, hey, it's sold out the first day on Amazon. I couldn't put it down, man. It's real. That's why the subtitle up there says one man's journey through the violent federal prison system in the U.S. Because federal prison is a dangerous place. I talk about my celly in there. He stabbed the CO over a gallon of wine. The CO took his wine. He made some hooch. He was pissed off and he went down there and he stabbed him, stabbed him 11 times. Man. I talk about a guy named Ace in there out of Ohio where he started stabbing a guy on the yard. They shot warning shots. He didn't stop. They shot him through the back and they blew his guts right out, right out of his stomach. The nurse was on the ground just wiping the dirt off him and trying to put his guts back into his stomach so they can get him out to the hospital. I talk about a lot of things in there and I go back and forth with my life and what led me to federal prison. It's a very real book. It's a violent book at times, but it's real. And I deal with emotions in the book, just what you're going through when you walk in there. So anyone that has a loved one that's serving a lot of time might be the book for them to read. Uh, Interesting. I guess I always like the kind of the technical aspects of a crime. You were a drug dealer. Was it cocaine? Is that it was cocaine? It was a crack cocaine crack case. cocaine. So like, what was your source of supply, for example? Did you have a local person or were you have a connect with the coast? Maybe we're with a Colombian or a Mexican, bring it right up. Or was it a local guy? How did that work? Mine was more of a local guy. And so you would get it and then where you get the powder and then making the crack and then had a few runners out there. Were you that guy in the middle? Exactly. Really, we get powder cocaine. I cook it in a microwave. Yeah. Crazy as that sounds. And uh, I would bag it up into street sales and have my workers distribute it. 
And how did you find them? You start out with some guy, one or two guys you knew and or users, and then they would bring you other people in. Well, let me tell you this, right, Gary, my father was a drug addict. Uh-huh. He was like one of the, <laughs> as crazy as this sounds, he was like uh, one of the more famous crackheads, you could say, in my neighborhood. He knew all the crack smokers. Everybody knew him. And really, I was selling it to his friends in the beginning. And then it just took off from there. And people felt more comfortable coming to my city. Like a lot of white people come from the suburbs to buy crack. It's not a secret. They felt more comfortable dealing with us because we were white. Uh We always had the best shit. I don't glamorize what I did. I regret what I did. And I mean that sincerely. I polluted my community. I destroyed my community. They're irrational, irresponsible choices that I made that forever changed my life. But that's really what I was doing. I was a crack dealer, man, unfortunately. Well, interesting. And they did have some draconian laws. I remember that. I talked about before. You can make some guy tell on his mother when he's looking at 50 or 60 years in the penitentiary. Before that, just before the mandatory minimums came in, a lot of big time narcotics dealer might get 10, 12 years. And you can do, you know, one guy told me, man, I can do a tray stand on my head. Even you can do seven or eight years standing on your head, really, if you get your mind right. My friend Steve did, I think he did 10 or 11. Uh, he did 10 of a 12-year bit. And he could have walked at any time. He had information on people. And they, they approached him several times. Matter of fact, it caused him some grief in the penitentiary. They transferred him around a couple of times because they FBI had come and visit him and, and ask him about certain people. And he would not, he never would talk. He said, you know, he said, I, that guy got nothing to do with me. If you want to make a case on him, that's fine. But don't include me in on your reindeer games here. So he paid the price. <laughs> There's definitely a price to pay, right? <laughs> yes, there is. There is. All right, Chad. Well, this has been great. Anything, any parting words you want to say? Tell us, that, like, if somebody's listening, I have a whole, you know, across the gamut. You go, I'm going to have people who are have loved ones in the penitentiary or that looking for resources and, and want to help them out. So, talk about what you can do for people out of your website. I think might be ideal. Okay, so I do a lot of post conviction, a lot of uh, federal stuff, right? Post conviction, we do administrative remedies, like I said, the compassionate release. We do clemency petitions. You know, we try to help people. Like I said before, I told people when I left, I'd be the voice of the voiceless. People can find me on my website at www.myfreedomfighters.com. My email address is on there, freedomfightersPC at gmail.com. Also have a YouTube channel, same name as my book, Blood on the Razor Wire TV. The mission of that channel is to save kids from life imprisonment and premature death in the streets through our stories and experiences. I do a lot of interviews with other guys that walked out of prison, guys that I was in prison with, a lot of gang members, former gang members. I've interviewed FBI agents on that channel, police, lawyers. So we do all that stuff. We get into the penitentiary. We get into that life. But there's always a message at the end of every video. So anybody that wants to check us out, check out our YouTube channel, Blood on the Razor Wire TV. All right, Chad. Well, thanks a lot. Thank you, Gary. I appreciate it. Well, folks, that ends a, another Gangland Wire episode. Really appreciate you tuning in and listening, however you listen to it, whether it's on the website or on one of the apps. I also want to express my thanks and sincere appreciation for the kind reviews that you've given me on the app, or the Apple app, or, or some of the other podcast apps. I used to check them when I first did this. I checked them a lot, but I don't check them anymore so much. Once in a while, I look at them. Sometimes I get my feelings hurt, especially on YouTube, but that's okay. If you put yourself out there, you better not have a thin skin. I've learned that. 
My most recent documentary, I really want to express extra appreciation to the people that stepped up and helped me finance that movie and enable to increase the production values, hired a professional to do the reenactment scenes and some of the other things and got some better music I had to pay for. And we have it out now. Now, the last time I did one of these endings for the podcast, I had a different title. I changed the title just at the last minute. It's now about theft, burglary, murder, and cover-up. So I encourage you to come on the website. I can't get it on Amazon like I have Brothers Against Brothers and Gangland Wire because they changed their rules. And if I can't get a theatrical release like a major film studio or get it in a major film festival, which is kind of like, I don't know what it's like. It's dang near impossible unless you're politically connected to some of the people that run these film festivals. And a guy like me doesn't really have a chance. It's been my experience. I fought that a few years back and I gave up. It's too much effort for too little payoff. But if you want to stream it, it's on my website for $1.99. I figured out a way to do that. And you pay me $1.99 and I will send you a link to stream it. As well as my other two movies, you want to stream them for $1.99. Of course, I have the DVDs for sale. Or if you make a donation, why uh, I'll give you the DVD and give you a streaming link too. Or a book or Kindle book, whatever you want. You guys kind of know the drill by now if you've been listening to it. If not, just go to my donate page. One last thing, I've kind of dogged off on this PTSD thing. I used to always want to try to promote that. So if you've been listening to podcasts, you know what to do. But if you have any problems with PTSD and you know, and you're a veteran, then you know, go to the VA. If not, go to the VA website or just Google VA hospital PTSD, and they've got a hotline and they've got a lot of resources. And even if you're not a veteran, or if you just know a veteran, you can go there and find the resources. If you're not a veteran, you can go there and find resources. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey. <laughs>